If you brought your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to take them and open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 12. That's 1 Samuel chapter 12. Um, if you're new, we have been um, going through this, this old but rich book of, um, of the Bible found in the Old Testament that covers the time of the kings, at least the introduction to the time of the kings. So if you could open there, that would be fantastic. Um, and I hesitate to say what I'm going to say next, but I, I feel like I want to say it. Um, the Lord tells us that one of the things that we are to do is to honor our father and our mother, and I suppose he said that because when we're younger, it's difficult sometimes to honor father and mother, but I feel like um, in retrospect over my life that God honored me by giving me an amazing mother, um, and then I married uh, an amazing person by the name of Deanna and got another amazing mother. I know that's not true of everybody. Um, your mother-in-law might be a nightmare to you, but that's not the way it is for me, and uh, I'm not going to embarrass them, but I have them both here at the same time, which I don't think has happened, and I'm just, I just wanted to publicly acknowledge that, that I um, am grateful for God's grace in my life because of those two people, and my sister and nephew are here too. Um, I know and you know that we stand by grace alone, but God's grace comes to us in community, and we wouldn't be who we are if we didn't have God's grace uh, working through mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, which is why church is so important. You can't live out your faith by yourself. Um, so I'm just grateful, Lord. Thank you. And um, I want to pray again um, for, for this time that we have in the Word and ask God to bless it. Lord, you are so high and lifted up. And um, if we had the, the eternal perspective to see um, everything, we would be so utterly amazed at how unutterably magnificent you are, that your love knows no bounds and your power and wisdom and even the universe itself is but a speck um, in comparison to all that you are. And Lord, we want you to open our eyes to see that. We want, we want to know just how gracious you are because only, only with a fresh vision of who you are is our faith fed. Do we have strength to go into another week and face another challenge and and um, have the faith to be able to stand up in the midst of disappointments and sometimes depression and say, I trust in Christ and I rejoice in Christ. So I would ask that you would bless this time for your name's sake and for the sake of this family here. I, I also, Lord, would pray that you would just give us a, a spirit of humility this morning to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. Um, that we wouldn't hide things or cover things or justify things or deny things, but you would just kind of open a window from heaven to our souls and that we would be able to see ourselves as you see us. And um, so Holy Spirit, please just um, come through that window and help us to, to know your truth, to know your grace, and also to see a bit into our own souls. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we used to do this thing with our kids. Um, I don't know if I did it with all three or we did it with all three, but I know we did it with our third one. And it's the, the kind of the trick or the game that parents play when you're trying to figure out which parent is the favorite. Your parents, you don't know what I'm talking about, right? Well, the third one, Isaac, you know, he's a, he's, I talk to him about him a lot, and that's okay. I hope you're okay with that. Um, he's uh, the only one that isn't in here, so I can get away with it. And, um, he, you know, he's a toddler, and he kind of hobbled about. This is back of years ago, but um, he knew who mommy and daddy were, and he had some basic vocabulary, and you know, we'd kind of stand on two sides of him, and Deanna would be like, come on, Isaac, come to mama, you know who you love the best, come to mama, and I'd be on the other side. I'm sure this caused some psychological damage, but 
Um, I'd be on the other side doing the man's and come on, come to daddy, you're a man. Don't turn in your man card and go to your mother. Come on, pull out some candy, $5 bills, whatever it takes to get him to come to me. Now, I'm pretty sure that that kind of emotional torture is, is illegal in California somewhere. <laughs> but uh, but it, was, it was kind of fun just to see who he desired the most, where his loyalties lie. And, and um, I'm happy to say that he never chose me. <laughs> I would have devastated his mother. And that, I, I did, did devastate me. Years of counseling, that would have helped me to recover. Um, <laughs> the loyalty and desire, he'd always went to his mom. You know, now that was a kind of a, just a, a fun game that we would play. But um, when it comes to um, uh, serious human relationships, the issue of, in, in particular, the, the the human relationship of marriage, um, the issue of loyalty, singularity of desire, commitment, allegiance to that one other person, is foundational and fundamental to to the covenant of marriage. Um, it, 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 it's, it's what makes marriage work is the singularity of it. Is you have eyes for one person and no other, and you're committed and you're loyal. Um, that, that's kind of preserved in the teachings of Jesus when he talks about God the Father bringing the woman to the man and making the two into one, then going on to say that what God has joined together, let not man separate again, because it's such a unique relationship. Now, I'm not here to talk about marriage per se, but I am here to talk about the divine reality that marriage points us toward, namely the relationship between God and his people, um, that throughout the Bible, um, one of the prevailing metaphors of how God relates to his people is that of marriage. In the Old Testament, it was Yahweh and his wife Israel. In the New Testament, it's, it's Christ and his church. Um, that Christ is the groom and, and the bride is, is his church. And there is to be this monogamous loyalty and, and um, allegiance and devotion um, for, for the Lord that is unequaled, it is unchallenged, it is uncontested, it is unparalleled. That's how it's supposed to be from Genesis to Revelation, which is why in the Old Testament God's first um, statement of the old covenant where he bound himself to his people was, you shall have no other gods before me. None. It's you as my wife and me as your deliverer, your redeemer, your caretaker, your protector, your provider. I am everything to you. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus says something similar in the New Testament with a rather striking statement where he said that, and this is alarming, for some who want religion to be kind of a, just a compartment of your life, not the totality of your life, where he says, um, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. And he goes on to say, and anybody who's a parent will know that he's picking at the, at the, at the jewel of, of created gifts. If you love son or daughter more than me, then you're not worthy of me. That there is part of Christianity, like it or not, this is just the way it is, and it should be if you know how worthy he is of our love and devotion, is that he is to be, Christ is our groom. We are to have eyes only for him. We are to trust him as our protector, uh, provider, deliverer, as the one who cares for us in the, in the chaos of our lives. That we, are, that we are to trust him and him alone. That's, that's what he calls us to, that monogamous relationship um, of bride to groom. We call him the broom, groom king. Um, bride to groom. 
The problem, of course, is that you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament or church history and you realize there's so many times when the bride of the Lord has, has chased other things, other people, other things, um, other gods. Uh, that is, she has um, stained herself. She has taken her eyes off what is most holy and what is most precious and sinned against the Lord, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, and I'd be willing to, well, I bet, I, I know that, you know, there are people in our congregation that you, you may be just coming back to church and you may have been on a pursuit of other things, a career, uh, you may have made marriage the center of your life or children the center of your life and you find yourself completely shattered and broken because you've come to the realization that it just doesn't work. And you're here wondering, how do I get back? Maybe you had an experience of VBS one time and, and you're here, Jill, and I, I just want to know, can I, can I come back? Um, and then there are probably others who like to play church. I'm just kind of saying this outright. That come here because your parents came here or that's your tradition or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and you look like a Christian when you come here. But, but, um, but in the privacy of your own home or your own life or even your own heart, you, you, you love something else more than the Lord and you know it. It could be something good, beneficial, you know, like a, a career or, or your children or um, a hobby um, or it could be something sinful and destructive, like um, another woman outside of your marriage, or um, or uh, pornography, or money. Um, I'd be willing to say that there are some who, if you were to be honest, would say, you know, I'm 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 the unfaithful wife. I don't love the Lord above all else. But you're here this morning, and that's a good thing because I think the Lord wants to speak to you. The question is, how do you get back? And how does, how does the problem addressed of the wayward, sinful wife who has followed other um, pursuits other than the Lord and have broken covenant with the Lord? Well, I believe this chapter is the answer to that because it, it very much shows us the way back. And more than that, it shows us the heart of God that makes you want to come back. Um, if you've been with us, then you know that um, Israel made a fatal mistake in chapter 8. And that is, they asked for a king like all the other nations. Um, and if you're new with us, um, that's what they did. They asked for a king like all the other nations. And in doing so, essentially, they rejected the Lord. And this issue of rejection has been kind of the dominant theme in chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and now, now 12. And in chapter 12, the prophet Samuel comes onto the scene. He's the, he's the spokesperson for the Lord. And this is his last national um, speech. It's, it's the most lengthy speech that he gives. And in it, not only does he turn the reins over of national leadership to the new king, because up until that time, it was judges that led the people of Israel, and now there's a transition to the king. And so this kind of speech hands the reins over. But it does so in such a, such a way as to, as, to, um, as to plead the case with Israel to turn back to the Lord. It's kind of the last speech. He's, he's confronted them three different times about their sinfulness. Once in chapter 8, once in chapter 10, and now again in chapter 12. Just goes to show you, Lord, pleading with his people over and over again, his patient mercy. So what chapter 12 opens with basically two arguments. Um, they're trying to get Israel to see their sin. And and I want you to do your best to follow this part. Um, that we're talking about history at this point, but I want it to bring it to bear upon our hearts and our church um, in a moment. 
there's two basic arguments. He's going to argue um, for the, 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 the failure of, of Israel on the basis of his own faithfulness and their unfaithfulness, those, those two things. He confronts them with the truth. Now, he doesn't confront them as someone who is judgmental or condemning. Um, he confronts them because he loves them. God confronts his people and lays out their failures not to condemn, but actually to, um, to heal and to, um, because he does love them. And I think, by the way, that is such an important distinction we have to make as believers, which the culture does not want us to make. Um, and that is there is a difference between being judgmental and making judgments. Let me say that again because that is so key. There's a difference between being judgmental and making judgments. One is a failure to love. The other is necessary to love. Uh, a judgmental attitude, which Jesus condemns in the harshest of words, don't judge lest you be judged, is the kind of inner despising of another person because they're less than you are. It comes at them from the upside down side and it despises them. There's no love in the kind of condemning attitude of judgmentalism. And that we don't want to ever have in our church. At the same time, we have to. Love requires us to make judgments between right and wrong. You're going to be a horrible, unloving parent if you don't make distinctions, wise distinctions, moral distinctions for your kids, judgments. If I catch one of my children in a lie, I am required by love to say, son, daughter, uh, do you know what lying does to the Lord? Do you know what it did to the Lord on the cross? Do you know what it does to human relationships? It's wrong. I'm not telling you this to condemn you. I'm telling you this because I love you. That's making a judgment. Judgmental versus making judgments. One is an expression of love. The other is the absence of love. Those have to be kept in mind, brothers and sisters, because you will be accused of being judgmental when you're trying to be loving and make judgments. But what he's doing here is he's not judge judging them in a condemning way. He just lays it out so the people might be able to come to him. So here's the case. The case begins with, with, uh, with Samuel laying out his own faithful leadership. You might think this is self-serving, but it has a point. This is what the text says, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to see you're on a kite here. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Verse 2. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Now he's handing over the reins. But then now he uses this testify terminology as if they're in a big courtroom and, and he's going to establish who's guilty. Verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or, whom have I, um, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And the people respond, the people of Israel, to their, their prophet judge. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and has anointed his witness this day um, that you have not, been, not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. He's basically saying, listen, in my leadership in Israel, I was a faithful, just person. I didn't, I didn't compromise the bribes. I didn't take things from people. I didn't exploit people. Um, is that true? And the people said, yes, that's true. Now, the question is, why would he, he do this of his own leadership and say, hey, I've been faithful? I think part of the reason is because if he was truly a faithful, just leader, then they had no right to ask of the Lord another one, a different one. 
God had provided the perfect man for the time. He's not saying that he's perfect or flawless. He's just saying, I executed my office with diligence, with faithfulness, loyalty, and justice. And the reason he brings it up is he's trying to show them, you had no right to ask for a king when God already gave you me. That's kind of part one of the case. And they say, yes, it's true. You were good and just. And that's like getting rid of, you know, a, a great leader for the sake of some other thing that you don't even have on your radar other than king like the other nations. The second part is he goes back and he shows them how they have repeatedly through the centuries turned from the Lord, including the present time in which Samuel lived. Let me read this beginning in verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, I'm going to get a kite out of here. Let's see. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up um, out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds that the Lord, uh, of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Now, he's going to declare the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness or failure of the people repeatedly. Verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt, and this is Old Testament history. If you're not familiar with it, you need to read Old Testament history. It's just great stories, but hopefully you read your Old Testament, at least some of it. Um, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. In other words, there was oppression. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord in grace and mercy heard them, and he sends Moses and Aaron, deliverers who brought uh, your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord, their God, who saved them. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hathor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they, Israel, cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of the enemies that we may serve you. Continuing in verse 11, and the Lord sent, because he heard, he sends deliverers again, because he's gracious and he's merciful, though his bride keeps wandering off. And the Lord sent uh, Jeroboam and, and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, now he's present tense, I mean, that's chapter 11, right before this chapter, uh, an evil king comes to attack the people of Israel. And so they... You know, they forgot the Lord after Moses. They forsook the Lord um, during the time of Judges that we just read about. And now we read this. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, excuse me, no, but it, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahas, the king of Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And then switching down to the very end, he, he talks about the fact that if your king follows the commands of the Lord, then you're going to do well, but... Last part of verse 15, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, just can put this together for a moment, um, for those of you who have wandered a little bit. Um, here's God's wife that he, he loves. He brought them out of Egypt, and the text says that they forgot him. That he delivered them from a whole bunch of nasty enemies, and it says that they say that they forsook him. And now another attacker comes by the name of Nahash and, and they replace him. The people repeatedly, they forget him, forsake him, and now they replace him. 
Now, how would you, those of you who are married, and those of you who are not married, you have to use your imagination. How would you, as, as a spouse, deal with a spouse who forgot you, forsook you, and replaced you? That'd tear me apart. I'm sure it would you too. Now, sometimes we think, well, God doesn't get torn apart like that because he's God after all. And yet what I understand of God in the Bible is that he is an emotional being abounding in joy. He's also a being that can experience emotions of anger and wrath, but righteous anger and righteous wrath. A God who delights, a God who takes pleasure, and yes, a God who grieves. So whatever we may feel or imagine ourselves feeling with an erring spouse, take that deep, profound, painful experience and multiply it by divinity because God experiences things far bigger than we do. And that's what he experienced and experiences when his bride leaves. It's a wonder he just really honestly, I've said this before, doesn't just blast it all to hell. Because most of us, that's exactly what we do. And the prophet goes on and says, listen, um, if you continue this direction, the last part of verse 15, if you continue headlong, uh, wandering in a direction away from the Lord, um, worshiping other things, then ultimately God's hand will be against you and your king. Those are words of, of, of judgment. But I want to remind you that this is after he has repeatedly come. He's warned them in chapter 8, warned them in chapter 10. Now he's warning them in chapter 12 again. As if God is pleading to his wife, will you come back and acknowledge that you've left me? They're at a pivotal place here. The people have now heard this uh, case before them. Um, and the question is, where, where, the, where, where will their loyalties lie? Will they go back to the Lord or will they continue to, to, to seek after other things? Trusting in kings, trusting in Baals and Asherahs or, or forgetting and forsaking the Lord. Now let me bring that into the day a little bit. I believe with all my heart that the church today, and I've said this before, is in great danger of losing her sense of loyalty as individuals and even as a corporate body. The world is telling us things that go contrary to the, to the words of our groom king. And the question for all of us, young generation, older generation, is who are we going to listen to and where does our loyalty and allegiance lie? Picture my little son Isaac listening to the voice of the world saying, Isaac, it doesn't really matter how you live. It's just whatever. That's the postmodern, that is the contemporary voice on moral issues. You can live however you want, it's not a big deal. That's the voice of the world calling you in. And over here you have the voice of Christ. Says I, I am, I came for you. I bled for you. I took the fullness of God's wrath for you. I substituted myself for you. I offer you everything. 
I offer you not only forgiveness, I offer you my spirit, I offer you a new body, I offer you a new world, I offer you a face-to-face encounter with the most blessed reward you'll ever see myself. Which are you going to listen to? I think it's really important we answer that question, everyone in here. And we mustn't think for one moment that somehow we can be loyal to our king groom and somehow place his teachings over here as if our loyalty to this is not in direct line with our loyalty to him. We're seriously mistaken if we can sing you're all to us and despise this. This is his. If our allegiance is truly to the heart of our groom and king, our Jesus who died for us, then we pay the utmost respect in submitting our lives, our thoughts, and our worldviews to what he has taught. You cannot be loyal to Jesus and disloyal to his word. So now they have a, have a question to answer. This, this people, are they going to acknowledge their sin or not? Well, in the other two cases, the other two confrontations, they just hardened their heart. In this story, something different happens. That is, the prophet asks for a verdict from heaven. He's laid out the case, the people. He says, basically, you are living in wayward sin from your Lord. And, um, and this is what he asks. And this is really the breaking point where they hear a verdict from heaven. This is a... What the text says, says, now therefore stand still, telling the people, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? That is beginning of summer. Wheat harvest in Israel, May, June. Remember, Israel doesn't rain all that much. He's going to do something extraordinary to show that God heard and show God's verdict. He says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain out of the ordinary And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. There they are. They're listening to the prophet, but they're not getting it. It's like, have you ever talked to somebody, could be a teenager, I've done this with adults too, where you're talking the truth, you're saying, hey, what are you doing? And they're just like glazed look on their face, like they don't, they, they hear what you're saying, but they don't hear what you're saying. Well, that's like a, kind of the sense, the people have heard what the prophet said, but he's like, listen, you want to know what the Lord thinks? Listen, I'm going to pray, and the, the sky's going to grow dark, and you're going to hear loud rumbling thunder, and you're going to see lightning, and this earth's going to be a downpour, and you're going to see that in fact you have sinned against the Lord. And um, we've experienced thunderstorms, most of you have anyway, and it can be a terrifying event, especially if it's close. And so the people respond realizing, oh my goodness, we are in a dangerous place. We have wandered from the Lord, and it says that they greatly feared the Lord. And it moved them to finally break and repent. The people say, and it says, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They finally broke. If you want to know the way to get kind of back um, in fellowship with the groom that requires an acknowledgement that sin is sin, but even more than that, a brokenness over it. 
They finally break. Now, I think brokenness is probably a little bit different, difficult to define sometimes. But you, can see, you, you know it when you see it. Um, I know when I see it in another person. I know when I see it in my kids. You know, one punches the other. And you as a parent say, listen, that's wrong. You can't punch your sister. You need to ask for forgiveness. And he sits there with clenched teeth and says, will you forgive me? And you know full well he's not broken over his. He, he feels that, well, I punched her because she was mean to me. You know you come to a broken point when there's no but at the end of the sentence. All the justifications are gone, no denial, there's no excuses given. You simply own your sin for your sin. I sin because I sin. You know when you come to a place of brokenness when your, your reputation doesn't matter as much as your, your restoration of fellowship with the Lord. When you're willing to just say, okay, this is the reality, Lord, and be open and honest and... And no buts at the end of the sentence. No, yeah, but. It's, it's, the, it's the husband saying to his wife, wife, I'm, I have an addiction to pornography. It's not your fault. It's mine. Something's wrong in me. It's the wife, and I don't mean to stereotype, saying I... I, I spend us into debt. Um, and there's no excuse for it. Um, my sin is mine because there's something wrong in here. I'm trying to feed a hole with things. Just like a man is trying to feed the hole with sex. It's an idolatry. It means that, that what we're really looking for in fulfillment is something other than the Lord. And to come to that place of brokenness. And those are just two examples. You, you probably know what yours is. What is it that you worship? What is it you find your ultimate fulfillment in? If your ultimate fulfillment is anything other than the Lord, then you're worshiping that thing. Um, if what functions as the authority in your life, be that a wife or a career or a boss, other than the Lord, then... You're worshiping something else. And you need to be broken by it. In my thinking, the Christian life is living perpetually in a state of brokenness before the Lord. Here I am again. Lord, you know my heart. I'm not going to cover over anything. I want you, and I want you to break me, and I want you to keep me going in the right direction. Because on the other side of this brokenness is something wonderful is the best part of this chapter and one of my favorite parts of, of the entire book of 1 Samuel. Because the last piece, we hear of God's renewing grace and the reason why we return. It says, and Samuel said to the people, this is great. And they're afraid, lightning and thunder and downpours. And like, is God just going to completely smoke us, you know? And, uh, and Samuel turns, the voice of God says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. He doesn't let them out or doesn't, you know, say, hey, it's just okay, it's not a big deal. He says, you have done all this evil. Um, yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your whole heart. 
Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And every other idol that you live for for personal fulfillment is just that. It's empty. It may be pleasurable for a moment, but it'll leave you dry and guilty. Empty things. But then he goes on, like the central call is return to the Lord with your whole heart. But he gives two little four statements for this. Reasons why to return that are intended to motivate us to, to come running back to our groom. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Those are words of fresh water, of, of grace, of wonder, because it tells us about the heart of who God is. As someone who, he may judge his people, he may purify, he may um, cleanse his people. But the hope is, and the motivation to return is, he never forsakes. Contrast that with what came before. His people, his bride, may Forget him, forsake him, and replace him. But God will never uh, forget or, or forsake or replace. For two main reasons right there under that verse 22. Um, for his great name's sake, when the, when the Lord bonded himself to his people, beginning with Abraham, he swore by his own name to bless a people. He swore to love them. He swore to deliver them. His name is at stake. His honor is at stake for the sake of his name. He swore to love, and so he will love. He swore to deliver, and he will deliver. He will not abandon what he swore himself to. So God's name is at stake. That's, that's, that's how much and one of the main reasons why he is so committed to his people, to his bride, of recovering her, of pleading with her and bringing her back. But there's another piece of that that is also very important, and that is his pleasure. You notice it? It's, it's not just that he puts up with us. It's not just that God's like, oh, geez, these people are so disgustingly disappointing. But you get the last part there where it says that um, because it is pleased, he takes pleasure, he takes delight in making us a people for himself. That Zephaniah 3, that the Lord sings over his people with loud singing because he delights in his people. He delights to take sinful people and make them part of his family and make them holy and make them blameless and give them everything, including himself. It's his pleasure. Ephesians 1 says basically the same thing when it, it tells us that by, in, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose. That word purpose also means pleasure. He takes pleasure in pursuing and reclaiming you. What it's like to actually know and think, the Lord takes pleasure in me because he's so just magnificent. You'll never find a heart like this. We could scan the entire cosmos of, of the universe and never find a heart like this. You'll certainly never find a heart like this in another human being. A God who never forsakes a God for his own name's sake will, will make true in his promises and a God who takes pleasure in making sinful people saints. And then there's the last four in verse 24. For consider what great things he has done for you. If you want to keep your heart fresh and you want your life to reflect a, a loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus based upon grace and proper motivation, 
then it's going to require you to consider how much he has done for you. That means remembering and contemplating and reflecting. One of the great mistakes in my life has been to believe that once you come to Christ by hearing the gospel and giving your life, that somehow you move on from the sacrifice. You, you don't move on from it. You keep considering, Lord, what? I just still can't believe to this day that like on, on the cross, you, you knew my name. I know myself, and I don't deserve for you to know my name, but you did. And to think that you had the courage to give your life for me, knowing all the things that I have done and thought about, I just can't believe the level of a measure of grace that you would do that for me. And you know what that starts to do? Turns your heart back to the Lord, makes you know that he's good. You want more of it. If, if you want your passion to die, then forget. Amnesia. If you want to fade, forget. The opposite of that is just keep remembering what he's done for you. And not just in the big deliverance of the cross, but you look back in your own life and you see how many times the Lord has answered your prayers. How he has turned your failures into, goodness, into blessings. How he has been there for you and how he has maybe released you from lies or depression. And just see, Lord, you've been so faithful all the way through. Consider what great things he's done for you. That is, pour yourself over his grace in your life. It will win your heart back. There you have it. God is enduringly loving to his people, a heart like no other. But he's also a God that you can look back and say, wow, your grace is so sufficient in every part of my life. And as you contemplate, consider, and reflect on that, our hearts return back to the Lord. He fuels their return with the grace of God. Amen. That's the way the Bible works, brothers and sisters. The question is for all of us here that I want to end with is, where do your loyalties lie? Where do they lie? Is it with Christ and his word? Or is it with something else? Because I really believe this moment today, no one's here by accident. And if you're someone who's like, you know, I'm living for something else and I know it, to be perfectly honest, then it's a day in which you think, acknowledge it, pray God break me of it, no more excuses. Knowing that God's heart is just like this. He'll always take back his bride. He'll always take you back. If you'll be honest, humble, and broken before him. So will you answer the question for yourself, where does my allegiance and loyalty lie? And if it's not with Christ, may today be a new beginning for you and for us. So answer the question for yourself this morning.